All right, well, let's continue to seek after the Lord in the Word of God, the Bible. Would you open your Bibles with me? We are now in the book of Genesis, and uh, we've been going through that book uh, section by section. And now we've been talking about the friendship of God, focusing on Abraham's life. And now we're going to be in chapters 23 and 24, uh, both of those chapters. Now, when Doug asked me, he said, hey, would you do a sermon on chapters 23, 24? What that implies is there's going to be a common theme that connects these two chapters that then will give us the subject of what God wants for us out of the sermon. So we got to come up with a common theme between these two chapters. So let me share with you uh, what, what came to my mind. Chapter 23 is about Abraham burying his wife, Sarah. That's the summary of that. Then you get to chapter 24, and that is them finding a wife for Isaac, so obviously, I mean, this must have been in Doug's mind. Um, obviously, when you connect these together, guys, here's the sermon subject today, how to find your wife and then how to bury her. That, that's that's got to be it. That's what Doug had in mind. All right, maybe not, maybe not. Even if he did, I'm not going to do that because I want to stay happily married longer than today, okay? So that that's not what we're going to see today. Uh, instead, uh, instead uh, what we have here again is this. We're going to focus on chapter 24. We're not going to focus on 23 um, just because of, of the length of it and the time we have. But 23, again, is simply this. You can read it on your own. It is Abraham and Sarah. They've been married over 60-some years, gone through so much in their lives, and of course, then she passes away. It records this whole business transaction that Abraham goes through to buy a grave site for her. And then he buries her and he mourns her loss. So that's chapter 23. But today we're going to focus on 24. As I said, it's this whole idea that Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for his son, Isaac. And as we study this spouse hunt story today, we're going to see as we look at the wife that they find, this girl they find, her name is Rebecca. As we look into her life just from this chapter, at least four ways that you and I can grow to become a godly spouse a godly spouse, four traits. And, um, and so I'm excited for what that looks like and what we're gonna get into. But before we do, let me give a couple clarifications before we jump into the text. First, do not mentally check out if you haven't already, okay? This sermon is gonna apply to everybody that's listening to me right now, okay? Let me explain. Uh, if you are single and you think you might get married someday, this, this is a good sermon to be in today. This is a good text to be in. Take a lot of notes because you wanna be looking for someone that has these four traits so they're growing in these four traits in their life, okay? So this is a good sermon for you. Also though, make sure you're becoming these four things in your own life, okay? Uh, foolishness is to say, well, I'm not gonna work on becoming a godly spouse till I'm married. Yeah, no, you become that person now for that future potential marriage and spouse in the future, okay? So that's, that's those of you who are single looking to get married someday. Uh, how about this? What if you're single and you don't have any plans to get married or married again, whatever that might be? Guess what? All four of these traits actually apply to a lot of different kinds of relationships in life in different degrees, so these are all going to apply in different ways for your life as well, just as a godly person following the Lord. And then of course, that leaves the rest of us that are married. Now, unless anybody's willing right here in South to stand up and say, I have officially become the perfect spouse and I have nothing to learn, no takers, it's a quiet Labor Day weekend. Or maybe that's because no one wants to jump up on that one, right? And, um, and so unless someone's willing to do that, then we can all humbly all say, we have room to grow. Amen to that? We have room to grow. And all the wives on behalf of their husbands say a hearty amen. All right? So <laughs> there it is. So, um, so we all have something to learn. Here's the second thing before we jump in also. Four ways that you and I can become a godly spouse. But you know what? I want to make sure, first of all, that you hear this. The only way that we're going to be able to live out these four things in our lives is if we have God, the Holy Spirit inside of us to empower us and help us. In other words, if you're here, if you're in North, if you're watching online and you can't confidently say that you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, 
which means that you believed in Jesus who died for you and repented of your sins and you become a Christian. If you can't say that, then this is gonna be a frustrating sermon because you're gonna hear four great truths from God's word, but you're not gonna be able to live them out because the Bible says that the only way we can live these things out is after we've become a Christian, God gives us the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to live these things. And so I just wanna say right out of the gate, that maybe if, if you're not a Christian, that's awesome that you're here. It's awesome that you're watching online. But your only thing you need to hear today is give your life to Christ. Believe in him, repent of your sins, receive the spirit. Then these things will make sense and you'll be able to live them out, okay? All right, for those of us that are believers with the Holy Spirit, what can we learn from this text for godly ways? We're gonna look at the first verse, uh, verses of verses one through nine and then find our first one. Here we go. Chapter 24, it says, now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, "'Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land.' Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there." So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So looking at the life of Rebecca, uh, we're already gonna learn right here the first trait, even though she's not mentioned by name, but you'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute, that we need to grow in becoming a godly spouse is we need to be a growing Christian. Uh, are we a growing Christian? Now, where do I get this concept from the text that we just read so far? This is the whole idea that Abraham is telling his servant to not go to the people of the land of Cana to find a wife, but instead to go back to his family and to his homeland to find a wife. Now, why is that? The reason is that the majority of the people that live in the land where Abraham's at, they are not worshipers of the one true God. But his family and the, where he came from, apparently there were a lot of people that were worshipers of God. And so he's telling his servant to go back there to find a wife that worships God so that they can find a, a good spouse for him. You see, this whole concept of God actually telling his people that you need to only look to marry worshipers of me in the Old Testament plays out later in the Old Testament. Listen to this text in Deuteronomy 7. God is telling the Israelites in the future, he says, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. Who's them? That's the people of the land of Cana. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall take their, not take their daughters for your sons. For here's the reason why God says this. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Do you hear the reasoning God is saying there? See, God is saying he, he wanted his people holy, which means set apart. And one of the main relationships he wanted them set apart, those that followed God, uh, was from unbelievers, those who didn't follow God, is because they would pull people away from seeking after him. God understood the monumental influence in marriage, especially that a non-worshiper of God could have on their, on their godly spouse who was trying to seek the Lord. And so God was telling them, don't enter 
married. And that's why with Isaac, they go all the way back to the Abraham's family to find someone. And when you read, get to verse 50 in chapter 24, you see that she and her family are described as those who would follow the Lord and worship the Lord. And so that's what God wanted for them in those days. How about you and I today? We're New Testament, we're Christians. What does God say for us? Well, it's the same thing. God only wants us to consider marrying other Christians. And so I'm gonna share with you a text that is so crystal clear in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter six, especially if you're single, listen to what God says to us in this. God says through Paul, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness, that's Christians, and lawlessness, that's non-Christians? Or what fellowship has light, that's Christians, with darkness, that's non-Christians? And you can read the rest of that section. And this is one of the clearest, strongest languages of sections of the Bible about any other subject, really. Now, let me make a clarification what God is not saying in here. God is not saying that Christians are superior in value than non-Christians. Do not walk out thinking that, okay? Because remind me, who did Jesus die for? Non-Christians. And actually, all of us started as what? Non-Christians. The Bible says we're born in the darkness, and the only reason that if we're a Christian, that we're a Christian and we're in the light is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay? So don't, don't look at this passage that, like that. All right? Instead, God is saying there is a colossal difference, just factually speaking, between people who are his children, who he has redeemed and been born again, and they've been brought from the darkness into the light from those who still have yet to do that. In other words, God is saying there's no neutrality when it comes to him and people. It's like basketball. There's only two teams on the court. Everybody's got a jersey on and we're all born with the wrong jersey on, okay? And through Jesus, we can get the right jersey on, but there's no third neutral team. And God is saying it will impact all of your relationships, especially marriage. And what is fascinating about this passage is the imagery that God through Paul uses. This idea of being bound together, do you see that? If you have a physical Bible, you can write or you can do digital highlighting or whatever it is, bound together. In the Greek, this means yoke. You guys ever seen a picture of oxen that are connected together by a, a wooden yoke? And the purpose of it, it goes over their necks and it's to take them and synchronize them to go from point A to point B to accomplish a certain task, all right? That's the image that Paul is using. So we're actually gonna act this out because God through Paul is using this to apply to relationships as humans that we can have with people that we tie ourselves together. So I'm gonna need a, a volunteer. I need a best friend in first service. Would you be willing to do that? You have a name badge. I mean, that means you're official. You're, you're, wait, that means you're willing to do anything that I asked you to do. That's awesome. Okay, go, on, go ahead and um, grab that end over there. Now, as we get ready to do this, a couple things. Um, yeah, we'll just pick this up and we're going to walk up on stage. And it was interesting when I asked someone, I said, hey, do you mind? And we're going to move you over just a little bit so I can come back a little. There we go. Um, do you mind making, and I guess you're off the camera now. Why don't we move over here a little bit? All right, there we go. Okay, I think I'm all right. Either way, here we go. So we're limited, but uh, I asked someone to make me a, a makeshift yoke and tie some ropes on the ends of it. And the subject was gonna be about marriage. And the person said, oh, so you want the ropes to be nooses? No, no, that would be the wrong message for marriage today, okay? That's no. So you're welcome. I scratched that idea. That's, that's not what we're going for. Um, <laughs> the other thing, if you notice, this yoke is exceptionally long. Do you know why? Because that way, if I had a volunteer that didn't have a mask, we would be okay. This is a social distancing, COVID-19 friendly yoke. That's what this is, okay? All right, so um, there's my little uh, setup for this. Now, here is the idea that God is talking about. God is saying that, and we're not, we're not gonna act out marriage. That'd be weird, okay? Unless Holly could be up here, okay? We're gonna act out the next closest relationship, which is best friend, okay? We're gonna be best friends today. But you're a Christian, I'm a non-Christian best friend. And 
if you notice in the phrase, it says growing Christian, okay? See, when Jesus saves us, redeems us, then we are to grow in closer to him, become more like him. And, the, and one of the ideas they talk about walking, okay? We're walking towards Jesus. So we're gonna act that out, that we're gonna be walking towards Jesus, spiritually speaking. So I guess now when I think about it, we gotta get in front of this over here. We're gonna be at the edge of the stage, okay? Now we're gonna act like Jesus is down here, down by the chairs there. We're gonna walk towards Jesus. Now, before we do though, I need to, spiritually speaking, become a non-Christian. Are you ready for what this looks like? Let's put this on our, we're gonna put it behind us, put the, the rope in front of your neck there. There you go, perfect. Again, no nooses, you're welcome. And um, here is, spiritually speaking, what this would look like. Let me get ready, okay? You stay there, you're doing really good. You just stay there, keep on, yep, perfect. All right, I'm almost ready. I'm almost ready. Okay, now... Go ahead, Christian, best friend, start walking towards Jesus. Uh, yeah, okay, let's, let's do and stop there. Uh, do, a little, whew, do a little rewind there, please. Yeah, okay, perfect. All right, let me uh, just get up here before it gets really bad. All right, let's give him a round of applause. We're gonna end that before someone really gets hurt. Let's go ahead and put this back down. All right. So let's do that now. Thank you so much. Now, here's the deal. I know a lot of you right now in this room, you're thinking, did I just see what I just saw? And all in, those of you online, you're thinking, what did I tune into today? Okay, let me explain. Yes, you did see a pastor lay down on the stage on his face. You saw some rope around my neck. You saw everything that happened and you think it's crazy. But I love this imagery that God gives us. Let me explain what was happening. In Ephesians chapter one, it says that non-Christians are like a spiritual dead corpse. Spiritually speaking, they're like a dead corpse. As Christians, God redeems us and we're supposed to be walking towards him, growing towards him. But when we bind ourselves in the closest of relationships, best friends, definitely marriage, you can see how it's gonna go. It's not gonna be fun for anybody involved. Everybody's gonna be frustrated. People might even get hurt because there's just a factual monumental difference between a non-Christian who's a spiritual dead corpse. They are not going towards Jesus. And yet you get a spouse or a best friend who's trying to go towards Jesus. And when we bind our lives together close, a lot of times the unbeliever is gonna hold a believer back from growing in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's what the Lord is saying. So let me say this, for those of you who are single, and you're looking to get married someday. This is not a preference thing for God. This is a command of the Lord. Only bind yourself together with Christians. If you are dating or engaged to a non-Christian, I say this with love, but fervency, break up now, save yourself from a lot of heartache in the future. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, I've been counseling someone who they went into marriage as a Christian to a non-Christian. And here they are just rightfully frustrated because it's not working, right? Or uh, I'm talking to someone and they are now divorced because their non-Christian spouse said enough with this Christian spouse thing and divorced them and left them brokenhearted, okay? And so let's trust the Lord that he knows what's best in the relationship. Now, if you also notice, I said growing Christian. So let me say this, this is the area of wisdom. Again, if you're single and you're looking at marrying someone and you find another Christian, that's good because they're not laying down, spiritually speaking, dead. They're at least standing, but still the question is, are they walking towards Jesus? Are they growing or are they stagnant Christian? And so just consider that in prayer because it's gonna be frustrating even still. Maybe they're a Christian, but if they're not growing towards the Lord, it's gonna be frustrating for you if you're trying to. Now notice I'm not saying go find a perfect growing Christian because there are no perfect growing Christians to be found. No one would be married if that was the case. Now how about those of us that are married? Are we a growing Christian? Or are we a stagnant Christian that's kind of holding back our spouse and our family from seeking after the Lord? Let's not be like that, okay? In fact, men, the Bible says that in a way, we are supposed to be the pace cars for the spiritual seeking after the Lord for the, our spouses and for our children. And so maybe if we're just honest today, we're like, you know what? I'm not being, uh, I'm more of a stagnant Christian spouse or parent than 
one who's seeking after the Lord, but just let's just repent of that and let's get in whatever gear we need to and seek after the Lord and be a growing Christian, all right? So Rebecca was a growing follower of the Lord as we saw, and we're gonna continue to see. Well, let's go on now. We're gonna look for another point of that in verse 10 through 16. Um, Here we go. We've got this. Then the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers, drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, was, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful. Now listen to this description. A virgin and no man had had relations with her, and she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Here, what we see in the description of Rebecca, how to be a godly spouse that she was, that you and I also need to be, is we need to become sexually pure, okay? It's right there in that clear, in that uh, description, I guess, of her. If you notice in verse 16, again, she's a virgin. She had no relations with men, adults. You know what that means. Now, is this a preference thing for the Lord? that he just prefers that his people remain sexually pure and so forth. No, this is God's requirement for us for them. And it's, it's his requirement, his command for you and I, even still today as New Testament followers of Jesus. So singles, listen to what God says to you about sexual purity uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. It says, but if they, that's singles, do not have self-control. Self-control over what? Sexual activities, sexual strong desires, okay? Then what? Let them marry. Why? Because it's only within marriage that activity and, and strong desire for sexual relations should occur. And he goes on, he says, for it's better to marry than to burn with the passion for those things, okay? So sexual activity, strong desires as singles, stay pure until uh, you have your spouse in marriage. Now, what if we're married? What does God say in Hebrews chapter 13? God says marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge and, and so he wants us to stay his sexual activity and strong desires for only our spouse in our marriage. And now you notice that I'm talking about activity, but I'm also talking about strong desire. Another word for that would be lust, okay? Because here's what Jesus further teaches us about sexual purity. He's saying it's not just by action, it's also in the heart and with the eyes He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is a really simple point. Doesn't take a lot to understand this, but I'll summarize it one more time. If you're single, uh, stay sexually pure until a day that you might have a spouse. If that's your desire, either way, stay sexually pure, both in action and with your eyes and your heart. If we're married, same thing. It's just within the walls and the relationship, if you will, of the marriage with our one spouse. That's what the Lord's desire is for us as a godly person and a godly spouse. Now, before we move on from this point, let me make this really clear though. You know, once in a while, I'll run into someone who has bought into a lie of the enemy that floats around. And they think that because they have fallen into some sort of sexual impurity, some sort of sexual sin of some sort, that for some reason that it's beyond the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. 
And I just wanna encourage you today in here and over in North and online, if, if that's you right now, that Jesus Christ died for all of our sins. And there's no sin, including any sort of sexual sin that we could have ever done, no matter how many times we've done them, that's beyond his forgiveness if we own it and we repent of it before the Lord and say, please forgive me. And so this might be the best thing that someone might've heard today. This is what you needed to hear. Own it, repent of it before the Lord and receive immediate forgiveness and move on in your life in sexual purity from then on. Don't be held back. Don't be held back. All right, so we need to be sexually pure. That's a way to be a godly spouse. Now we're gonna continue to read on. We're gonna see a good chunk in the middle of this chapter, chapter 24. And we're gonna find the last two traits of a godly spouse and a godly person for that matter. And so follow along with me. Um, there's some awesome stuff here. Okay, here we go, verse 17. Then the servant... Abraham's servant went to meet her, that's Rebecca, and said, uh, please let me drink a little water from your jar. So she said, drink my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw. And she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Now, let's not just read over that, okay? Maybe some of you are like me, but when I read that, I'm thinking, that, that, look, that could come across as creepy. I mean, here's a guy who just met this girl and he says that he's gazing at her in silence as she's going over there and getting water and watering the camels. And it just seems like, okay, that's a little odd, okay? But rest assured, this is not a creepy gazing, okay? Remember what he just got done doing. He was praying. He said, God, give me a sign to find the right girl. And whichever one might say, I'll not just give you water, but I'll get water for your camels. Like maybe she'll be the one. And sure enough, here she is getting water for his camels. It's the, it's the gaze of like, Lord, did you answer my prayer kind of gaze, okay? So rest assured, it's not a creepy, it's not a creepy gazing, okay? Let's read on, look at verse 22. Uh, so when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels in gold. And he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Now, we are gonna actually skip now ahead um, uh, to verse 49. And let me just tell you what happens in that time frame. Um, the servant, Abraham's servant, goes and meets her family, her brother Laban. You get introduced to him. And then he just reiterates everything you and I just read. So we're gonna save time and not read all through all of it again. Um, if you wanna read it yourself. But now here is the servant in the home of Rebecca and her family. He's talking to them in verse 49. He says this. So now, if you are going, family, to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or the left. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord. So we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here's Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10. Afterward, she may go. And then he said back to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. And then they called Rebecca and they said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, what? I will go. All right. So right here, what we see now 
is we see a third trait about Rebecca that she's going to be a godly spouse. And the same thing for you and I as well is that we need to become a servant-hearted person. A spouse, if you're married, if you're not married, just are you a servant-hearted person in general? This is what we see Rebecca as. Someone who isn't just thinking about herself all the time. Someone who really has a radar out about other people around her, finding their needs and trying to serve them. She's servant-hearted. And within being servant-hearted, there's at least three characteristics within that that help define what it looks like to be servant-hearted that we see Rebecca herself do. So here's the first one. A servant-hearted person goes the extra mile. Did Rebecca ever go the extra mile? Yeah, I mean, this is the whole answer to prayer thing that the, ser- the Abraham servant had. He's like, I want to find someone who is going to just give me water, but maybe serve my camels too, right? And in, back in verse 19, that's what she offers. I'll draw wa- uh, water for your camels as well. You see, in that culture, it would have been common for a woman to have served a guy who asked them at the well for water. That would have been common service. But it was a whole different level for someone to say, I'll also get water for your camels. Why? Well, I'm not a big, ex- big expert on uh, camels, but what I do understand about camels is they drink, uh, they go a long time without water, right? A long, long time. But when they do drink, they make up for that lost time. They drink a lot of water. So remind me, help me out, how many camels did his servant have? Anybody remember? All right, yeah, that's what I thought. It's like a quiet room this morning. Love you all, man. But it's like, and then the mass just makes it hard. Ah, I saw 10. Thank you so much. Bless you, brother. All right, so 10 camels, okay? 10 camels. I mean, this was not a small thing for Rebecca to say, I'll get water for your 10 camels, okay? You see, she's willing to go the extra mile to serve him. Do you see that there? God continues today to ask you and I as his followers to go the extra mile. Jesus said, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Do you hear that? And so are we being a servant-hearted person going the extra mile with our spouse, with people around us? My wife, Holly, she models so well for me, someone who's a servant-hearted person. And within that, to go the extra mile Not only does she serve our family by making most of our meals for us, other than the frozen pizzas that I, you know, work really hard on making, um, but in that too, she will go the extra mile and take mental notes of what meals I especially like. And then she'll make those meals for me, uh, you know, here and there and periodically, even though a lot of times those meals take a lot more work than other ones she could have done. She loves to serve and she goes the extra mile That's what the Lord is calling you and I to do. So when we're thinking of serving other people, let's not just think, okay, what's their need, but what's an extra thing I can do in the name of of the Lord to bless and to serve this person? Okay, so that's the first thing within a servant hearted we see. And then also, here's another one within being servant hearted is you're gonna be a hard worker as well. A servant-hearted person is gonna be a hard worker. This is what Rebecca models for us in our text. When you go back to verse 20, as she's getting the water for the camels, notice what she, it says. It says, so she lackadaisically emptied her jar into the trough and she slowly crawled back to the, no, right? I love the words used here. She quickly emptied her jar. She ran back. Do you guys hear the hard working nature of what she's doing there? To be a servant hearted person includes working hard, and it's something Jesus continues to call you and I as his people to do. He says in Colossians, whatever you do, do your work heartily. You see that? Heartily. As for the Lord, rather than for men, when we serve others, are we being hardworking at it or just doing the bare minimum? We're being lazy about it. You know, for, for, for spouses, like you think about it, all of us, we should have hobbies. It's a healthy thing to have hobbies. But if our hobbies are getting in the way to where all of a sudden we're not even touching the honey-do list at all because of our hobbies, uh, if we're not cleaning the house maybe like we should and it looks like it could be on an episode of Hoarders because of our hobbies, right? maybe someone needs to grow 
and becoming a servant-hearted, hard-working person. Maybe we need to give less time to those things in order to get to the task that we have. And so we need to be hard-working. And then here's a third point of being servant-hearted. Sacrificial. A hard-working servant of the Lord is also gonna make sacrifices for the Lord and sacrifices that they serve people. It's gonna cost them something. How about Rebecca? Did she ever make a sacrifice in serving in our text? Yeah, it's the whole end that we just read there. Remember that whole fun dialogue between the servant of Abraham saying, can I go now and take her now back to Isaac? And the family's like, well, actually, can you wait? And I love how they just throw out like 10 days, you know, like throw a number out there. You know, why why were they doing that? What was going on? The family understood that highly likely they would never see Rebecca again in their life. They lived so far apart from each other. There weren't airplanes in those days and they wanted 10 days to say their goodbyes. But Rebecca, what does she reply after they finally ask her? And I'm sure a lot of women are like, why didn't they ask her to begin with? But anyway, (laughs) when they finally ask Rebecca, what do you want? She's like, I wanna go now. That is a big deal that she said that. She had every right to say, no, 10 days. And then, you know, so I could say goodbye, goodbyes, but here it was. She was such a servant of the Lord. It's such a servant of her like new husband she's about to marry. She saw God's hand in this whole thing so clearly. She's like, no, I wanna obey the Lord. I wanna serve the Lord. I wanna obey and serve Isaac. I wanna go. And she was willing to count the cost of saying goodbyes for longer in order to go serve. Wow, that's challenging. How about for us? You know, today is the Lord calling us to sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13 um, Here's what God says to us. He says, do not neglect doing good and sharing that serving with others. And then what? For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Couples, when's the last time that we served our spouse in a way that it cost us something? We're we're really hurt, if you will, to serve. Single, same thing. When's the last time you've served somebody else around you where it really cost you something in in order to serve them? That's what the Lord is getting at today. And so for many of us, that means that uh, we need to uh, limit some of our time and our hobbies, if you will, and our TV time and so forth to get to the honey-do list, to, to sacrifice those fun things in order to serve more or to help the children or clean or uh, some of us, it might be the next time that we go out to eat with our spouse or whoever it might be that, that we're willing to sacrifice the steak restaurant for the salad restaurant that our spouse so much wants. And can I just confess something in church today? That would be a really, really big sacrifice for me. I would have to pray a lot about that one. But do you, you see what I'm saying though? Where, where we wanna serve someone and we're willing to lay down some good things, appropriate things we could have, but we're saying, no, no, I want to serve you and it's gonna cost me something. And so that's what it looks like. Now, we got one final trait of a godly spouse that we're gonna see from Rebecca's life that we need to do as well. Are we gonna be hospitable? Are we gonna show hospitality towards others? Remember Rebecca, the servant says, hey, can I come stay in your house? In verse 25, you notice she says, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. I mean, you know, it's not like she goes, yeah, we're kind of busy. You know, this is like last minute, dude. You can't just like expect that we're just gonna open our house and prepare a bed and and then get straw and feed. That's for the camels, just for clarification. You know, like we're not gonna do all that. Like that's, you can't just ask to come last minute. She doesn't say any of that stuff. Like it's an instant I'm in because she would have been one of the main ones to help prepare the house and everything. She is a hospitable servant of the Lord and she welcomes them in. Let me give you a kind of a working definition of hospitality. It is to share what we have with others in our home because we love them. I'll say that again. Hospitality is to share what we have with others in our home, key part, because we love them. This concept of having people in our living space and sharing what we have with them to love on them, Christians or non-Christians, doesn't matter, hospitality is so important to the heart of God, get this, that when you go to the New Testament and the, the, the top leadership office of any church is eldership. 
When you look at their qualifications, get this, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, guess what's listed as a qualification for elders? They're hospitable. That they're sharing what they have with others in their homes because they love them. I'll flip it around to help make the point. You can have a godly person who matches all the other qualifications, but if they're not practicing hospitality in their life, they're actually disqualified from being an elder until that changes. That's how important hospitality is to the heart of God for all of us as God's people. So let me try to hit this home, okay? If we're a couple, if we're married, this means we gotta be hospitable towards one another, first of all. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. When you get married, you live together. Of course, you're, you're sharing what you have with each other, okay? But CFC, listen, can we have a married couple living in the same house that basically might as well be strangers to each other? You see what I'm saying? What I'm talking about with being hospitable towards each other as a, in, a, in a married relationship is it's, it's being fond of one another, spending time together in our home, enjoying being together in our home. So what this means for some of us is to limit the TV time and limit the video game time and limit the going out to the workshop time and to the golf course and the ladies' nights and the guys' nights and all the other things that we might do. And then instead with that extra time to redeem it and spend some more time with our spouse in our house and to actually just love each other and and be happy to be together in our home, right? To maybe do a little cuddling, little embracing, sitting next to each other on the couch once in a while when you watch a show instead of, well, I'm just, I like my guy chair, okay? I, I like my guy chair, but once in a while, I'm like, you know what? It might be a healthy thing for me to get out of my guy chair and go sit by my wife once in a while. And I try to mentally do that sometimes, okay? It means sleeping in the same bed, at least here and there. And I understand the sleep machines and you can't sleep and I get all that stuff or some of those like that, okay? But, but you see what I'm saying? Like we need to eat meals together and and be hospitable towards each other. If you have kids at home, it should never be a question to the kids. Do mom and dad really love each other and love to be together in, in their house together? Do they ever love to do that? And so for some of us, let's just start right there and just be warmer to one another as a couple in our home and so forth. Now, once we are hospitable towards each other, then what? Whether single or married, are we having people over to our houses sharing what we have with them in our home because we love them. Now, notice I, I, I say this is different than, if, than that category earlier, the servant-hearted category. Now, that's not because practicing hospitality is not service. It is definitely service, but let me ask you this. Can you have someone who serve, serves people all the time, but never has someone in their home? You see, having people into our living space is a whole different level of serving. Because now it's like pulling curtains back for people to start seeing more of the real who you are. You're sharing more of your intimate things and self and home and so forth with people. So it's more vulnerable. But the impact that hospitality can make on people's lives is incalculable. Again, I think this is why God says it's so important. He has a qualification of an elder is to be hospitable. I know of people that their lives, part of their journey coming from a non-Christian to a Christian is a key part was a Christian invited them into their home just for hospitality. And God used that to make an impact. In fact, Thursday night, we have Thursday night service. After service, someone came up to me and said the exact same thing. They're like, that was my story. It happens all the time if we as God's people are willing to have people over into our homes. And so are we doing that? If you own a house, are we having people over? If you own a mansion, you're having all of us over. We're just waiting for the invitation, okay? (laughs) But you're like, well, I got a small place. I live in a little apartment or condo, a duplex, whatever. And so it doesn't really apply to me. Well, yeah, you can. I mean, if you live in a van down by the river, you can get one person in there. And everybody my age and above got that one, okay? But you see what I'm saying? Like, like if we all have a living space, it just might depend how many people we can get in there, but let's do that for the glory of the Lord. Now, I know a lot of you right now are saying, wait a second, like, dude, we're watching online because of a COVID pandemic. What are you talking about hospitality, okay? So let me address that. Absolutely. It doesn't make any sense for some people to have someone in your home right now. Totally get that. 
but let's get creative. Maybe if you have a front porch, you can be six feet apart on the front porch. You've got a backyard, you got a grill, have a grill, something, go out on the street, just do what we can. Guys, here's what I'm trying to say, church. Do not allow this pandemic to take away one of the most powerful, impactful tools in our toolbox to touch lives for Jesus Christ. And so let's go out there and look for someone. In fact, I'll give a specific challenge over the next few weeks. Talk to your spouse if you're married, but think about who might you be able to have over as close as you feel comfortable with to love on them, share with them what you have in the name of Jesus. And let's go ahead and do that. And so the worship team's gonna go ahead and come up as we close out. And so as we do that, let me just review one more time these four traits and just ask us, how are we doing in these? Are we a growing Christian? Or are we, have we become stagnant? May the Lord help us to kick it into a new gear. Are we remaining sexually pure? Again, if you have blown it in any area with that, own it, give it to the Lord, repent of it, and receive his forgiveness and start a new day of sexual purity. Are we being a servant-hearted person? And then are we showing hospitality? Have we been practicing that? Maybe it's time to kick that back into gear uh, along through these pandemic days. Now, as we close out, I wanna close this one more final thought. This honestly might be the most important thing I'll say the whole time, except for the gospel presentation that I've talked about. Did you know that the relationship of Isaac with Rebecca is actually a foreshadow of another relationship? A much greater relationship, a more important relationship. And that relationship is the spiritual marriage of Jesus with his bride, the church. Jesus with you and I, if we're Christians, with Christians, okay? In other words, Jesus is the perfect spouse. And so as we think about that, let's run it through the grid of what we just talked about. Was Jesus ever a growing Christian? Well, he's got us on that one. He's the Christ in the word Christian, okay? And he perfectly loves the triune God, the Father and the Spirit, doesn't he? Was Jesus ever sexually pure when he lived here 2000 years ago? in absolute every way. In fact, he was pure of any sin at all. Was Jesus ever servant-hearted when he was here? Wow. He came to serve you and I's greatest spiritual need of the flames of hell forever for our souls by dying on the cross for us. And in that serving of us, did he ever go the extra mile? Yeah, actually, not only because of his death and resurrection do we get saved from having to go to hell, that's mercy. He's gone the extra mile and said, now I'm welcoming you to live with me in heaven forever. That's grace, that's the extra mile. And Jesus, when he was serving, of, uh, serving us, us, did he ever have to do any hard working? I remember a time that he was sweating drops of what? Blood. And when Jesus was serving us, did he ever have to make any sacrifices? His own life. Now, how about this one? Was Jesus ever hospitable? Actually, he wasn't because he didn't own any place to live. But what's Jesus doing right now? He's preparing a place in his house for you and I, not just to visit him, but to live with him forevermore. All because of his sacrifice on the death and the resurrection on the cross for us. So guys, may God help us to become more like him. And would you stand with me as we worship him for what it took for that to happen?
Christ. So I hope you have a blessed day and a blessed holiday tomorrow, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for being here.